Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. Please like, share, subscribe, and otherwise support our podcast, Relentless Truth with John Warren. You can find more about us at johnwarrenmedia.com. Today, we're going to be discussing the economy. We're not going to discuss economics as a discipline per se, but this is an overview episode. We've just spent three weeks in the U.S. Constitution discussing the U.S. Constitution in a way that hopefully you found interesting. But today we're going to tackle economics, 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 and I do have a cold. And so I'm not allowed to go out in public because I freak people out who think that I might have COVID. I did do a rapid COVID test and it was negative and taught my classes as usual this week, but I sound funny, but we're going to press on and we're going to talk about the economy. The first thing that comes to my mind is this notion of supply, demand and price equilibrium or equilibrium. It's the demand, the As Adam Smith said, the invisible hand of the market expresses itself. And so supply and demand and price all intersect at just the right point in the economy. Today, even if you're a student of economics, you're probably left confused, like I am, by where we are as a country economically. And so I thought it might be valuable for us to go back in time and and look at various periods throughout our history. Now, we're not going to spend, we're not going to get in the weeds and spend a lot of time studying uh, the uh, economic history of the U.S., but suffice it to say, markets tend to cycle. And so if you picture a whiteboard with a graph, graphing economic activity, whether it's GDP or some other measure of the economic activity in the U.S. And what you're trying to do is graph the peaks and the troughs and the periods of of growth that lead to the peaks and the periods of contraction or decline that lead to the troughs. And if you look at that over time, you'd see kind of waves in the ocean. But then government gets involved and and turns this beautiful graph with waves in the ocean into more like an EKG looking graph with sharper peaks and sharper declines. So I I can think of several examples of this throughout our history. You might remember Alexander Hamilton and the the first US bank, the first national bank and you might remember that as we expanded our sort of appetite or, or, or a search for real estate west of the Appalachian Mountain region, we made money very affordable. And this bank and others in the colonies in the initial states made lending easy. 
And, and so we had this run on all of this real estate and prices went up. And as you may know, if you're a student of U.S. history, that we had this bloodbath, all of these losses and and the values values were had been inflated and they crashed. And we had uh, the, the bank in trouble in no time because it had to foreclose to take back property. And so there's kind of our, our first example. And if you look at all of, of U.S. history, you know, the next period that, that popped into my head just now is the roaring 1920s. And, and you remember that electricity made appliances affordable for the, for the average consumer. So, so we finally now we have, we have lights and we can, we can do things at night and we have kitchens that are more functional. And again, we borrowed money to purchase a lot of these consumer items. And once again, we caused uh, from, from having low cost money, we experienced inflation in terms of devaluation of the currency, increase in prices. And we had an economic mess in the 1930s known as the Great Depression, as you know. Now, I didn't just suggest that the Great Depression was caused by some people buying refrigerators, but I do believe that free money, low-cost money exacerbated that problem. So if you fast forward into you know, modern days, those of us who can recall the Jimmy Carter years, we experienced again high inflation gas price gouging, rationing, all kinds of issues back during that economy. And if you fast forward through the dot-com bust of the late 90s, you land at a period in 2000, 2001, in the period just before 9-11, just before the terrorist attacks of 9-11, we had a robust economy, a healthy economy that was beginning to show signs of wobbling. You may remember that George Bush was president of the United States during that period. And sometimes I talk to my students about why the terrorists attacked us. And that, that's kind of an interesting discussion that doesn't have a lot to do with economics, but I, but I believe it does. You know, that they didn't represent a country. There's a lot of talk about the fact that most, if not all of them, were from Saudi Arabia, were Saudi Arabian nationals. And they were trained at various places to fly, and they they operated as a, a group called Al Qaeda. We hadn't really thought much about or heard much about Al Qaeda prior to to this attack. But I often ask students, most of whom, all of whom now, were born after nine eleven, and I ask, "What do you think they were really after?" And we talk about radical Islam and the difference between an Islamist or, or a radicalized Muslim and most Muslims that we will encounter in this country and even other countries. We even learn a little bit about their, their sort of their evangelism or their proselytizing and how they, they kind of have a staged view of it where, you know, first they try to convince you and then they, if they take over a country, they, they tax those who don't convert and make life a little better for those who do. And then there's this radical group. And I, I certainly don't, pretend to know how to quantify it, but it's a small group, but a dangerous one that then believes if those things don't work, then it's okay to kill the infidels. And in fact, some of them wake up every day thinking, how, how, how do we do this? And this group of, of hijackers, I always at this point ask my students if they've been to the 9-11 museum, where you get to see some shocking video and, and, you know, fire trucks that are scorched and 
uh, some of the personal effects of some of the people who were impacted. And at the end, as you're, as you're leaving that building, if you have a chance to go, it's worth the trouble and expense and, and everything else to go. It's just a powerful place to be. And I know those fountains get, uh, well, I don't know whether they're fountains or not, but the, the, the water features that are the size of the footprint of the two towers and located in exactly the, the location of where the two towers were. I know it gets some criticism, but to me, it's, it's just beautiful. It has all the names listed around the perimeter of the, in the granite there of the people who, who perished on that day, all the heroes, all the uh, fire department and police uh, workers and other workers and people who were trapped in those buildings or died at, uh, during the impact or otherwise were killed during that, that horrible day. And so I always encourage students, if you go look at the, watch the video near, it's near the end of the process. If you follow the normal process through the museum and there's video of the hijackers uh, walking, some of them walking through security. I want to say it's at Logan in Boston and they are, they look like they're out for a Sunday walk and they look like it's just any other day. And they had been trained and they had box cutters, as you know, and took over the planes and flew one into the North Tower, one into the South Tower, the World Trade Center. They also flew one into the Pentagon. And then famously, the one went down in Pennsylvania that was headed, I believe, to the U.S. Capitol. I believe that's what we believe. But, and you know, a couple of the, the pilots were trained nearby here in Central Florida, which really kind of brings it close to home. And I often wonder, or I ask the students to to ponder, what, what do you what do you really think they were they were after that day? You know, they didn't really represent a country; they represented a fringe fringe element of a religion, Islam, and a radicalized sect of Islam, and they resent, frankly, the American way of life. I I believe uh, as as much as anything else, and I think this was an attack to shock America. You know, they went, I don't think it's all that profound to conclude that, is it? When, when they go after these symbols of the American economy. So they attacked these symbols and I, I think they intended to, to cripple the American way of life. And, and they, they did. I, I remember like many of you do where I was standing when I heard that a plane and the way I heard it was that a small plane had flown into the world trade center, a private jet apparently is how they said it must have gone off course. And then obviously when the second one hit, we knew there was something else going on. And then a plane hit the Pentagon and there were rumors that another plane had hit somewhere else in DC. And then we hear about the one that went down in, in Pennsylvania. And, and I, I remember the kind of a somberness, uh, a sobering feeling. And I, I remember that, that it gave us instant perspective. The things that I woke up that day thinking we're so important, we're no longer important, and I wanted to be home with my family quickly. I remember the quiet that just swept through downtown Orlando. I remember the looks on the faces of people and just the sobriety, the the weight of it all that occurred to all of us. So I think to some degree, we, we began on those next few days to see that these terrorists were striking to impact the American way of life. And to some degree, they enjoyed some success. Now, we formed uh, rather quickly uh, the Homeland Security, uh, later the FISA court, TSA uh, certainly became way more robust at the uh, airports. And then, you know, there was a 
there's a bomb attack in a in a plane a guy had a bomb in his pants or in his clothing somewhere and another guy had had one in his shoes and we started having to take our shoes off and belts off and all the rest so so the terrorists yes they 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 had impact they were looking to impact the american way of life and i believe their primary complaint about america is our economic success i believe that most struggles in this world boil down distill to economics now life isn't that simple it's much more nuanced isn't it but if you look at all of the wars that have occurred all the conflicts all the all the stress between nations usually on a deep level on a nuanced level there is money or the economy involved so a lot of my friends conclude well you know they weren't successful and and i i remind them that the federal reserve and i I don't have the numbers in front of me but they they dropped the discount rate many times in succession over a period of just a few weeks to stimulate the economy they they made money much less expensive than the market was suggesting money should be. And by that, I mean, they reduced interest rates. They reduced the, when they reduced the discount rate, that is the rate that they charge banks and banks charge each other for overnight funds. When they reduced it, those multiple times in succession, money went from costing one number to costing significantly less than the market would bear money basically became lower cost a lower cost commodity and i remember that i mean it wasn't like a light switch went on but i remember in that period 2002 through 2004 i mean we're we're hearing that all of a sudden there's guantanamo and we hear about torturing uh, and inter- uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, I believe they were called. We go fight a war in Iraq and uh, eventually catch and execute Saddam Hussein. And, and then uh, we're, we're fighting a conflict in Afghanistan, seeking to go to these uh, camps, these terrorist camps and deal with Al Qaeda that, that had provided safe haven for these terrorists. And I remember just thinking life in America will never be the same. I mean, our, our news stories have changed. Our focus has changed. We're, we're talking about a different part of the world that we'd never really focused on much before. I mean, I remember Russia invading Afghanistan, having this protracted war there, but I didn't know much about it. And I frankly still don't. But what happened economically in the United States is the purpose of that long story. And what, what happened is... I believe that the low cost of money stimulated the economy and mortgage brokers began to kind of look the other way. And it, it's not really quite this simple, but there were hundred percent loans on the sale of luxury homes. And that had been unheard of the, the rules at my banks and other banks for Jump, we called them jumbo loans, loans over the the Fannie Mae limit. I think it was, it might be like four hundred and thirty or fifty thousand dollars, something like that. For for loans on larger houses, more expensive houses, the underwriting criteria was actually more stringent. Loan to value ratios were were limited, and I noticed that my neighbor sold their house, and and when I checked the documents, I found out that 
they the the lender had actually loaned more than the purchase price. So so the so the buyer put cash in their pockets at closing. And you've heard these stories, and you know that neighborhoods around the country, but Florida was a hotbed for this. Atlanta was as well. So was Texas. So was California. Other states that are high growth states experienced this, where we begin to see appreciation in prices and value that were just astounding. I remember my wife and I bought a house in a neighborhood we never thought we could afford to live in. We were blessed. God blessed us with financial success through the banks. And I remember we purchased a home in a town called Altamont Springs here in Central Florida in a little gated subdivision. And we there was a little bit of distress when in the in the purchase. And so we, we got a good deal and we bought it for, I think it was $405,000. And I remember a, a few years later, we, we decided to move to, to another neighborhood and, uh, and, and sold the house in the, in the heyday. I believe it was in 2006 for 640 some thousand dollars. And I remember thinking, and what was strange about that is, and, and now this is, this is kind of commonplace throughout the country, but it, it was unprecedented at the time. I remember seven or eight people showed up on a Monday with, to look at the house on the first day it was listed first weekday and they all brought full price or higher contracts with them. It was astounding to us that our house now has appreciated by over 50%. And these people are showing up with full price contracts with no negotiation required. So we sold that house and, and I, I later learned anecdotally from friends who who were purchasing property at the time that there was, well, there's one neighborhood that just, this fascinates me that, that I talk about supply, demand and price equilibrium. This, this story, it just amazes me. There was a neighborhood that, that where they, they built the roads and it's in Lake County, Florida, which is uh, getting closer to the middle of the state, moving West from Orlando, Northwest. And I remember they, they gave the participants that day, you had to register and they gave you a flag for every, every registration fee you paid. And I forget what it cost, but it was, it was something crazy. And, and you would, you'd get in your vehicle and drive to the lot you wanted and put the flag in the lot. And that entitled you to buy the lot at full price. I remember Disney finally developing the property now known as Celebration. And I remember a, a lottery, a raffle, as it were, that they had. And they had, if I remember correctly, they had kind of three types of homes. They had sort of the small cottage homes, they had sort of the everyday typical home, and then they had the estate home section. And I remember a friend of mine who was just ecstatic that he had uh, successfully uh, been chosen in that lottery and I, for a couple of different types of homes. Uh, home. And I remember people were just so elated or disappointed, and, and there, there were many, many times more people who wanted those homes than than homes available. It was it was just a an interesting time where demand was expressing it was roaring in its expression and supply was inadequate. And then you don't need me to tell you if you were an adult during this period that the market crashed. And I saw the other kind of story. I actually went with a friend who, another banker and a builder who was a client of his, and the, the builders no longer had anything to build because there were no developed lots and there was no demand to speak of for construction after the crash. 
And this occurred rather abruptly, but it it started in late 2007 and continued through 2009 and 10, and the implications of it continued for years later. But I remember driving through neighborhoods, and this this builder had converted his business model to buying distressed properties. And I remember him telling us as we would approach a home that, oh, this home had been sold for $450,000, but it's now worth two hundred and ten. And I remember thinking, wow, that's a family, and they, they lost their home. And when they purchased it, they probably thought, wow, what a deal, we're fortunate to have it. And now they've lost it, and they've had to move. And what happens to their credit, and on and on. And I thought back after this period, and this period lasted for, for, for a long time, as you know. And I, and I thought back to the terrorists, and I thought... They, they actually, in some way, accomplished their objective, didn't they? But it's because our government reacted poorly economically and made money much, much lower in cost than market rates. And so as we fast forward, and that's a gross oversimplification of what happened, but I think it's accurate, and I, I think the terrorists did have something to do with it, and I think... There are other stimuli from time to time that impacted, for example, the I mentioned Alexander Hamilton and the, the National Bank. There, there were other things going on at the time. But at the end of the day, low-cost co- low money prompts people to do things that, that aren't smart, that are, that are counterintuitive. And, and the way Americans look at this, and you know, I was once guilty of this, and so I'm ashamed and, and uh, not pointing fingers at you, but you might have fallen into this trap where you live your life based on the monthly payment. You know, it's most Americans do that. It's how much house can I afford? afford. I want the maximum amount that I can afford. And I base that on my salary and my comfort with the monthly payment, or maybe notwithstanding my comfort with the monthly payment, but the amount that I'll qualify for. So that's where I believe throughout history, we've turned this beautiful graph of rolling waves in the ocean of economic peaks and troughs. We've turned it into more like an EKG. Now that brings us to today. And this is interesting. Today, we find ourselves in a peculiar situation. We have endured COVID-19 and I'm, I'm not this brilliant commentator who, who can quickly provide a summation of the last couple of years. I'm not quite sure what happened to the economy, if I'm really candid. I know that there's all this talk of the supply chain, and that's great. I mean, it's a, it's a problem for sure. You see Port of Los Angeles and that other one out there next to it, where 40% of the goods that, that are imported into the U.S. come in. And you see all this inefficiency and boats floating around and, you know, I, we, we ordered a wall oven to replace one of ours, uh, our, our only one, uh, but, but, but it was older and we needed to replace it. And we had to wait eight months on the new one to come in. And you probably are experiencing this, this with certain things. Others, others seem to be okay from a supply chain standpoint, but you drive past car dealerships and you see very little inventory and you know, that we definitely have a supply chain problem. And, and when analysts talk about this, they talk about it in terms of, of, of COVID causing this, this problem. It was, it was COVID that 
that initiated the problem and then inefficiencies. And you've got truckers who, who blame the stevedores and people who operate the ports and the people who operate the ports uh, blame the shippers and so on. And the cost of a container shipping a container is something like $30,000 now where it was a fraction of that before. So we certainly have a, a supply chain problem, but I believe, and, and I watch the stock market and my students probably think that I am incredibly negative and I am pessimistic about the future of, of equities because I don't believe these prices are sustainable. You see, what the equity market, the stock market is supposed to reflect is kind of the net present companies are supposed to be valued in theory at the net present value of the future cash flow. And it really has to do with, you know, how you evaluate them, how you, what you believe about their pro forma, their future cash flow, their projected cash flow. How are they going to do in the future? And, and you can do math to kind of pull that back to today. And you can sort of divide that number, that value number by the shares outstanding, and you can kind of guess at where the stock ought to trade. Well, that's not happening today. The market is much more optimistic. And equ the equity market is booming. Similarly, houses. Houses are selling, they tell me, at 25% in Central Florida over where they were just one year ago. And, and I, I guess that could have something to do with pent-up demand from, from the COVID period maybe, or, or people are spending more time at home and they value their homes more, or people are moving to Florida from other places, or maybe they're moving to your state from other places. But there's something else going on here. This demand is expressing itself, this willingness to pay more, to pay more than the asking price, this this feeding frenzy, these auction-like environments that are occurring because an open house happens, realtors have totally changed their tactics. Not, not totally, but almost totally. And now they, they advertise that the house is going to go on the market. It goes on the market strategically near the end of the week, just in time for a big open house or two over the weekend. And then you'll see a notice that says that we have offers, make your highest and best offer by five o'clock on Monday or Tuesday and boom, it's gone. And then you hear later that the house sold for in three days, more than it's asking price to a cash buyer who waived inspections or waived appraisals. And so how does this happen? Where, where does this come from? And I'm not smart enough to answer that question very well, but I'll give you a couple of things that I know that are happening. One is we have extremely low cost money. My friends who are in the bond market say that the cost of bonds, the interest rate on bonds is at an all-time, a 50-some-year low. So that means that money is easy to get. The supply of houses, the people who are putting their house on the market, probably was diminished because of COVID. People didn't want people traipsing through their house while, while COVID was circulating. Or perhaps they had their minds on other things and didn't want to list their house at the time. Or perhaps, like me, they were expecting the economy to turn down and they didn't think it would be a great time to sell their house. And so somehow the supply hasn't caught up with demand, even though I'm hearing statistics about the number of people in the thousands moving to Florida every week. So there's a supply issue for sure. Demand is red hot and that demand is coming from people who are relocating, but it's also coming uh, indigenously from, from people who are already 
already here. The cost of money is, is very low. So where does it end? And what can we learn from this? Well, one of the things we know, if, if, and I just skimmed the highlights of these market troughs and peaks throughout U.S. history. In fact, I left off the post-World War one. I left off post-Civil War boom. I left out a number of troughs and peaks. But you get the idea, and, and the idea is that when money is cheap, demand begins to express itself, it begins to grow, that demand is not sustainable. So as supply grows to meet the demand, then when demand contracts, we have a problem. And so the moral to this story, the bottom line of this story is not go hide under a table in a fetal position anticipating some sort of incredible market calamity. But one of the morals of the story is that biblical stewardship is, is the way to live, isn't it? Don't take on as much debt as you possibly can take on. Be prudent about purchases. Don't go buy a home when the markets are inflated by 40 or 50% now over the last two or three years. And recognize the fact that these cycles are exacerbated by government action. So if we watch things like the Federal Reserve printing $120 billion a month and pumping it into the economy, we know that that is inflationary. That, that will devalue the currency, which increases prices. Now, one of the things I talk to my students about that is just fascinating. A number of them do the shopping or participate in the shopping for their family. So they go to a supermarket here we have here called Publix and their slogan is uh, where shopping is a pleasure. I mean, they're, they're just really good at what they do. And they offer great service, good products at fair prices. They're not the low cost provider, but they're not the high cost provider either. And my students will talk about the price of eggs and chicken and beef and milk and all those things. And and the inflation expressing itself in terms of uh, price increases. They'll, we'll talk about gas prices and the, the supply being limited. We talk about OPEC and the and the way that works. And and you know they're they're smart and they recognize that that the path we're on is not sustainable. So then when they hear that the Congress has approved a one point three trillion dollar infrastructure bill that doesn't have a ton of infrastructure in it, and that thirteen Republicans crossed the aisle and a few Democrats who are very liberal said no, a few Republicans crossed the aisle to say yes to approve this bill. They just shake their heads because they know that they're facing a $30 trillion national debt and we're adding to this year's deficit. In fact, the Biden budget, uh, Biden administration budget prior to all of this called for back in April of 2021, this year, called for revenues of about $4 trillion and expenses of about six. Imagine that. Now they're talking about another $2 trillion and then another bill behind that one for a total of somewhere near $5 trillion in spending. Now, if you're a student of economics, everything I've said to you makes some sense, but you're sort of scratching your head at things like, how could demand be so high in this environment? How could we have national debt totaling this number and nobody worrying about it? How could we still be spending government funds and not balancing the budget 
prudently? How could we have money that costs so little and still have this national debt because we should be able to service the debt much more cost effectively during a time where rates are low? So our great hope is in Christ. The If you study the Psalms and Proverbs and the imperatives of Scripture regarding stewardship, you know that the decisions that we make individually and that we make as a country should be made prudently. And I know, and you know that that's not happening today. This isn't a political podcast per se, but I have to scratch my head and what, what happened and say, what happened to good old Liberty, good, good old libertarian values, the values that really make our country great. If we compare our country to nations like China and they, they've got economic problems of their own today. But we think, wow, what a, what a great nation. Our, our constitution has, is one of the most enduring, if not the most enduring in the world. It provides us tremendous freedom. We don't have this state capitalism, this quasi-capitalism that they have. And we're not socialistic either. We have the freedom to create, the freedom to invent, the freedom to make things. Uh, we we enjoy the, the the building of wealth. We have incentives in our economy, and we have an environment that that gives us freedom. The freedoms that come to us in the in the in the Bill of Rights, the uh, the freedoms that we enjoy as we express and live out our liberty day after day. With all of that, for the Christian comes accountability, and it's important for us to recognize this. And we're, we're going to come back next week and talk about uh, some economic principles and really get in the weeds and talk about some things that will be very helpful, I hope, to you, the listener. But for today, I want to leave you with this thought. The gospel of Jesus Christ is beautiful. Jesus Christ is God's expression of his love for us. And, and that, that love and his finished work on the cross in so doing, he is our sufficiency. We get our eyes on on temporal things so quickly, and we're wise to plan. And there's there's even some some worry that is appropriate, I think, in times like this. But I want to encourage me and my family and you and your family to trust in him and rest in him. These are crazy times. I can't explain why our Congress does what they do right now. It makes no sense. And I can't explain why the electorate allows it, really. Why, why, why don't we impeach them all, vote, vote them all out of office? Part, part of the problem is we don't have a lot of recourse and the press is kind of messing things up with all sorts of inaccurate reporting. But in spite of all this, we don't wring our hands. We rest in him, our great eternal hope. This is just a little a little blip on the radar, a little little bump on the timeline of eternity. We can rest in him and the sweetness of knowing that, knowing his love for us and then our ability to love our neighbors as ourselves, thereby glorifying him is just our beautiful, great hope. I hope this has been helpful. We talked about some dark days economically today, and I know I know that can that can create anxiety. Uh, don't be anxious, rest and trust in our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So thank you for joining us. 
Our sponsor is CFS Financial. CFS Financial. If you go to johnwarrenmedia.com, you can learn more about CFS Financial. We work with all sorts of organizations, but we focus on Christian nonprofits and we do debt reconciliation and all things financially related from a consulting standpoint. Our podcast is Relentless Truth with John Warren. It's been good to have you here. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. Go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Thank you.